Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 5. We'll read the entire chapter of Genesis 5, and then the first eight verses of chapter 6. So all of Genesis 5, and then the first eight verses of Genesis 6. Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he had become the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he had become the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he had become the father of Mahalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalel lived 830 years after he had become the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. 
Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So far the reading of our scripture. Dear friends, in, in, uh, there was an author in the, in the U.S. of a previous century named Jacob Abbott. He wrote a consider, considerable number of biographies, which I highly recommend to you. Excellent reading. Historical biographies. And he made a comment in one of those biographies that I never forgot because I thought it's very interesting. And I think it helps us to understand something of the text that we have before us today. But he noted at the end of one of his biographies that when two people meet, or when two groups of people meet, either one, they have two options. They can fight with each other, or they can trade with each other. They can fight with each other, or they can trade with each other. Now, if they trade with each other, both sides win. Both sides are better off. I think we experience this when we go to the grocery store, or any store, right? And we hand the, the clerk our money, and the clerk hands us the pair of shoes or the gallon of milk that we're buying, and we both say thank you. You ever notice that? You both say thank you. Why? Because we're both better off. They got what they wanted, and we got what we wanted. We're both better off. We've enriched each other, so we say thank you. And she says, thank you. Now, if you fight, you're both worse off. You're both going to be worse off. Both sides lose if they fight. Both sides win if they trade. And yet the history of mankind on the earth is the history not of trade, but of fighting. Children, you probably noticed that, right? In your world history books, you seem to move from one war to the next. Everybody's always fighting. It was that way in the past. It was that way now. You can look at the conflict in Ukraine right now. Suppose that Russia had chose to trade with Ukraine. That Ukraine would do what they do best, which you know Ukraine has terrific farmland for growing crops, and Russia do what they do best. Suppose Russia has a great deal of oil, or whatever it may be. And they chose to trade. They would both be better off. They would enrich each other. Because when nations trade together, they have to work together. And, when, and the, the well-being of, the, of one nation depends on the well-being of the other nation. The richer Ukraine gets, the richer the Russia gets, and vice versa. But instead, as always, they went to war. And now, what is it now? I don't, I don't even know. 30, 40, 50,000 Russian men are dead, and equal number of Ukraine men are dead. The economies of both nations have been devastated. People are, are, in, are in terrible distress. Why is that continually the story? Why didn't, the United, why didn't Great Britain trade with the United States with the 13 colonies instead of going to war with them? 
Why doesn't China trade with Tibet or trade with uh, Taiwan? Why can't the Arab states trade with each other instead of going to war with each other? Why didn't the United States work together to trade with the South instead of going to war with the South? Both would have been better off. But instead, the situation is always the same. They always go to fighting and killing. And both are the worse for it. Well, my friends, we find something of that in our chapter that we have before us this, this morning. Because we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, right? And all these things get traced back to Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the history of the world, my friends, is the history of the conflict between that good and that evil. And we know from the book of Revelation that evil will win in the end. But there's all the strife and the trouble, the hatred, the warfare, the killing that has to take place in between there. As a testimony to the fact that God has cursed man, he's cursed this earth because of man's original sin. And we see it played out before our eyes on the news every day. We see it played out in our own church here, dear friends. Where again, I've, I've prayed now for three people in our congregation who are on hospice care. Three people who have, who have taken that, that step to go on hospice. And we read it in Genesis 5, verse after verse. And he died. And he died. And he died. The curse, it lies heavy on creation, doesn't it? We read in Genesis 4 already that Cain killed Abel, right? And, and now we are in Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. In fact, if you, if you look at Genesis 5 and verse 29, isn't it interesting there that Lamech names his son Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Notice that the curse is lying so heavy on Lamech that when he names his child, the only thing he can think of is that, oh, that God would use this child to relieve us from this dreadful curse that is weighing down upon us. So the curse lies heavy on creation. And it lies heavy on us today. Well, my friends, let's consider then this chapter that we have. I've entitled this sermon, The Darkness Deepens. The darkness that, that, that split, that divide that took place already in Genesis 3.15, it now grows even wider. And the darkness deepens. And when we get to Genesis 6, we come to, to, we come to this darkness and we see the cause of it. Now let's look then at the growing power of the serpent. The growing power of the serpent. Now we started already in Genesis 4 verse 8 where we saw that Cain killed Abel. And there you see already that the, the serpent and the seed of the serpent are beginning to flourish. They're beginning to grow strong. Such that you might say that the serpent scores the first victory if I can put it that way. He wins the first battle because Cain destroys Abel and kills him. And again, you see the depravity of the seed of the serpent. Cain is struck, or Abel is struck dead by Cain. But we see it also later in the boasting of Lamech 
By the way, if you look at, the, at that family tree that I put in the notes there, you can see that there's actually two Lamechs. You could actually circle them. But there's a Lamech, that's the son of Cain. Notice he's the last one in that list there. He has a wife, Ada, and a wife, Zillah. And then he has four children. So he's from the line of Cain. But then if you go to the line of Seth, you'll notice that Lamech is also the father of Noah. So there are two Lamechs there. But Lamech, the son of Cain, you can read about in Genesis 4 and verse 23, where Lamech is boasting to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Here's Lamech boasting that whatever Cain had done, he had done far worse. Why, he killed a man for only striking him, for only wounding him. And he's boasting in this. Again, you see the depravity of the serpent manifesting itself in his children. The children of the serpent are acting like their father. You see that in Lamech. But my friends, when we come to Genesis 6, again, the darkness deepens considerably. Because now it's not the Cainites that we're talking about, but it's the Sethites. It's the children of Seth. So look with me at Genesis 6 and verse 1. This isn't immediately clear from reading uh, the text, but it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Now those men would have been the children of Cain. So I could translate that. Now it came about when the Cainites, the Cainite men, the Cainite families, began to multiply on the face of the land. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God, the Sethites, so the children of Seth, in verse 2, <coughs> in verse 2, the, the sons of God, the Sethites, saw that the daughters of men, or the daughters of Cain, were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So, dear friends, I want you to see this now this morning, that now we're not talking about the Cainites. Now we expect wicked behavior of the Cainites. They are the children of the serpent. The text has made that clear to us. But now it's the children of the Sethites. It's the children of Seth. And what are they doing? They're looking across that gulf. Remember, God had put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But now the Sethites, they look. The enmity begins to recede. And they look across the, the, the way, you might say, and they see the daughters of Cain. They see that they're beautiful. And they begin to desire them. And what's happening now, my friends? God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Remember, that's the antithesis. I've used that word so many times now. That's the antithesis, the enmity that God has placed between them and the seed of the woman. But what happens? The Sethites, the sons of God, those who have lived in the godly line of Seth and Enoch, we read that Enoch was taken. He didn't even die because he lived so close with the Lord that the Lord took him. Now the children of that line are beginning to look across the gulf. They're looking across the valley, as it were. They're looking at the other side. They're looking at the daughters of Cain. And they say, the antithesis? We can, we can hone that down a little bit. We can push that back. 
It doesn't need to be quite so sharp. We don't have to, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to be so strict about that anymore. I mean, those are good girls. They're good women. Maybe they, they weren't only just beautiful. Perhaps they were quite accomplished women as well. Whatever the case, the Sethites begin to lay aside this antithesis, this enmity that God himself had put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And remember, my friends, that that enmity is salvation. The enmity that God put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is salvation for the seed of the woman. That's how God preserved his people after the fall. He put that enmity there so that it would be clear that these are the ones who are the enemies of God. And friendship with those is enmity with God, is to place yourself amongst God's enemies. And now these Sethites, the sons of God, they begin to look and they begin to desire. And the text leads us to believe the end of verse 2, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, probably not just taking monogamous marriage here, just one wife, but the text would lead us to believe that they're taking as many as they want. They're building a harem, as it were. And so the antithesis has been laid aside. And once again, the, two, the, the distinction between the world and the church, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, is blurred. It becomes fuzzy. Do you remember when that happened the first time? You remember, my friends, that the first time it happened was when Eve gave her ear to the serpent in the tree. When the tree, or when the serpent said, Has God said? And then the serpent spoke those words, You shall not surely die. And Eve, instead of being repulsed, instead of fleeing, she listened, she gave her ear. So that's the depravity, now, not just of the Canaanites, not just of Lamech, but of the Sethites. And the conclusion is given us in verse 5. And what a dreadful verse this is, my friend. Is this one of the darkest verses in the whole Bible? What has become of God's creation? Remember how we stood here exalting in the beauty of the Garden of Eden, how perfect it was, and how God provided for every need of man. Look where we've come, dear friends. Look where we've come. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now I see five things here. I see five things in this verse. First of all, we see the intensity of man's depravity, or of man's wickedness. It was great. That's the first thing. The wickedness of man was great. Then we see the extent of it. The extent of it. It was on the earth. Or it covered the earth. The whole earth. It was on the earth. Not just in their locality. But on the earth. The extent of it. Then we see the inwardness of it. That it wasn't just actions. It was inward. It was the motives. The thoughts of their heart and of their minds. Right? That every intent of the thoughts of his heart. It was something not just external. Not just outward. But it was internal. The inwardness of this depravity. Then we see the absoluteness of it. That every choice they made was stained with this depravity. And I'm just focusing there on that word, only. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Only evil. 
And then last, the time of it, or the duration of it, continually. Now, my friends, in the Reformed churches, we speak often of the five points of Calvinism. We speak of TULIP, right? T-U-L-I-N-P. Now, total depravity is the first one. That's so clearly taught there, is it not? Look at verse 5. The words are piled up on top of each other. That when God looks at man, he sees a, a depravity that is intense, that is extended over the whole earth, that is not just outward, but also inward, that is absolute. It applies to every action they do. And the time part of it, the duration of it, is continually. That's why we talk of total depravity. And here you might say, congregation, we come to the, to the, to the depth of the, of the darkness in this chapter. That God's final conclusion on His created creatures is that they are as bad and as evil. Uh, they, 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 they are totally depraved. And I want you to contrast that with what God said on, in Genesis 1. When God looked on the sixth day at what He had created and He said, Behold, it is very good. And look where we've come now, dear friends, to Genesis 6, verse 5. Could there be a, a more stark contrast between Genesis 1, verse, was it verse 23? I can't remember. But at the, end of, at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, when God said, it's very good, and now, yeah, verse 5, only evil continually. Well, my friends, there's a few questions in this text that I do want to address before I move to make some points of application. I've put those questions there. Did they really live that long? Uh, because we're often astounded, aren't we, at the length of the, the lifespans of these people. And I really don't have anything to say about that. Uh, because uh, it, it, uh, we just take what God's Word says and we, and we believe it. Uh, I don't have anything else to say about that. Um, they lived so long that Methuselah would have died just before the flood. Like just before the flood actually happened. Um, so we just take the word of God. It's extremely difficult to understand. But we, uh, we read it and we accept it in faith that God uh, speaks the truth to us. Who are the Nephilim in the, in, the, in the second question there? Who are these Nephilim? Notice that uh, I've explained this text that it was the sons of God, the Sethites, who saw the daughters of men, that they were Cainites, the daughters of Cain, that they were beautiful. And uh, other people have explained that differently, you know. That some people have said that, these, that the, uh, the sons of God were angels that came down and that uh, had relations with the daughters of men and that they gave birth to these Nephilim that we read about in verse 4. Now, some good people have, have believed that. Uh, the, the scripture does say that the angels in heaven are not given in marriage. In Matthew, somewhere in Matthew it says that, which would lead me to lean against that idea, that those were angels. Uh, others have said that the sons of God here were like the rulers. Uh, that you, find, you find that language in the Psalms, that the, 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 the leadership of the people are called sons of God. That's a very possible uh, interpretation. Um, I, I really don't have much to say about it beyond that. Uh, I think that it's the sons of God refers to the line of Seth, and the daughters of men refers to the line of Cain. That's how I've understood it, and I think that makes sense of the text. 
Now, some people have looked at chapter 4, though, and come to a, so, some difficulty there, because it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, those, those children, presumably it's talking about those children, were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Why would the, uh, the, the, the Sethites marrying the daughters of Cain give birth to these mighty, heroic men? And again, that's a difficulty that I can't necessarily explain, which is why it has led some people to say that they, these men were rulers. But then again, I, I think, the, the, why would the rulers have given birth to, to mighty men? I, I mean, these, these are very difficult verses in many respects. At any rate, so I'm going to leave it at that. The Nephilim, in my understanding, were uh, mighty men, full of power, wicked men. Uh, the, the, the result of this union between the Sethites and the Cainite women and and that they, were, that they brought the wickedness of God's created creatures to as deep as it could come. Then the much more difficult question in question three there, does God repent? The language given us in verse six is very powerful. The Lord was sorry, or even it can be translated, the Lord repented, he, he regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, or he literally, he had a broken heart. Now, my friends, when we read language like that, we have to understand that God speaks to us in his word in language and in categories that we can understand. John Calvin said that parents lisp to their children, right? We use baby talk with our children to help them to understand us. And Calvin says in the same way God lisps or he uses baby talk to us so that we can understand his ways. Because we know that God had a plan from eternity to create man and that man would fall and that he would save them through Christ, his son. We know that from other places of scripture. And so we can't understand this language literally, but we understand this language to be, and again, here's a theological term for you, an anthropomorphism, right? A, a, a language that God uses to speak in language and categories that a man can understand. An anthro, right? The Greek word for anthropos is man. It's an anthropomorphism. And actually, my friends, it's not just in verse 6 that we have an anthropomorphism, but every time we read that God spoke to man, right? And in, in verse 3, we read of the Spirit of God striving with man. Well, those are all anthropomorphisms. God does not speak in the sense that we speak. God does not have a voice box, right? He does not speak in that sense, right? God does not strive with people. God does not get irritated as we read in this passage. And yet, that is what happens, right? The Lord regrets that he made man on the earth. Now, I know, I know that doesn't solve all the, all the uh, difficulty. But I do think that we have to understand that God represents himself to us in human categories so that we can understand uh, the, the, the sorrow that was in his heart when he saw the wickedness of man. Now, I have this quote from Calvin here where he says, Wherefore, there is no need for us to involve ourselves in thorny and difficult questions. When it is obvious why these words of repentance and grief are applied, namely to teach us that from the time when man was so greatly corrupted, God would not reckon him among his creatures. As if he would say, This is not my workmanship. This is not the man who was formed in my image and whom I had adorned with such excellent gifts. I will not condescend now to acknowledge this degenerate and defiled creature as mine. 
Similar to this is what he says in the second place concerning grief, that God was so offended by the atrocious wickedness of men as if they had wounded his heart with mortal grief. So again, Calvin is saying there that God is, is communicating to us his anger and his wrath with the sin of man by clothing that anger in terms that humans would understand and even experience. And so God says, I'm so angry with man, I'm going to wipe him off the earth and I regret that I ever made him. Again, human language. Well, my friends, finally we have in the third place the grace of God shining as a light at the end of this chapter, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I hope to say more about that in my application, so I'll skip over that for now. And let's look at these points of application. And my first point that I want to make very briefly is just to highlight the specific sin that is given us here in this chapter. And so I do especially direct this to our young people. Because as you seek a spouse and as you pray that God would lead you to a godly wife or to a godly husband, I trust that that is your number one priority when you seek a husband or when you seek a wife. That you find someone who is aligned with the seed of the woman. That you find a spouse that is on the right side of the antithesis. That is the, the sin, my dear young friends, that is specifically given us in this chapter. That it is sinful to look across the way at an unbelieving woman or an unbelieving man and to desire that person to be your wife or your husband. That is, is not just a mistake. Now it is a mistake and it will bring you untold grief in your life. But it is sinful. And the New Testament also says that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because there is that antithesis. God has placed enmity between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. And we're not to cross over that bridge and to enter in those kind of relations. We are to evangelize those people. We are to speak the gospel to them, to exhort them to come to the seed of the woman and not to enter into a marriage relationship with them. So that should be your number one concern, both now in prayer and when you meet a woman or when you meet a young man, that you ask yourself and eventually that you ask him. You know, I've always told young people that one good practical way of doing this, and I highly recommend this practice to you, and people always smile when I say this, but when you go on a date with a young man or a young woman, when you get to the end of that date, Ask your date to close the evening with prayer for you. That is a nice, efficient way to weed out the ones who are not uh, on the right side of the antithesis. So I give you a very concrete, practical thing to do. And by the way, if you get to the end of your date and you're not willing to pray, that would be a problem too that you should look at and confront and repent of. But that is a simple, concrete thing. Now, I don't say it's foolproof, but I think it is a concrete thing that you could do that would quickly give your girlfriend or boyfriend the idea of where you stand on that issue. Well, I leave that now and move on to my second point, a window of opportunity. Here, my friends, I speak especially to those with whom the Spirit of God is striving. In verse 3, we read those striking words, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. My friend, it can be that there's people, even in this congregation, with whom God is striving. 
He's calling you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Perhaps God has brought circumstances in your life and He's calling you. He's calling you. He's even striving with you to leave a life of sin and to turn to Jesus Christ and to find your life in Him. My friend, if that's you this evening, I want to say something about that window of opportunity. Because there will come a time in God's calling, in God's knocking, in God's bringing the gospel to you, that the door will shut. I would submit to you this morning, dear friends, that there is nothing more terrible that can happen in the life of a person than when God's door closes. And the knocking stops. The calling stops. And when God no longer strives with you. My friends, we should all tremble. Even if we're Christians today. We should all tremble at these words. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. That means God does strive. But not always. And the door of opportunity... The hour of grace, the time of grace comes to an end. And God turns his back upon such. My dear friend, if you are unconverted this morning, if you are not a Christian, hear God's call and turn while you still can. Because God's striving can cease. And then there's no hope for you. If God doesn't call you, you can never be saved. And So I, I call my friends that you would today repent, that you would turn around, that you would look your sin in the face and put it to death, throw it away from you, and turn to Jesus. Come to the Savior and find your life in Him. God is striving with you today. And that window of opportunity may close. In light of this, I want to read Proverbs 1 and verse 20, where also we're given such a Such a powerful instance of God's striving with men. Here, uh, the, the picture is wisdom. And if you look at Proverbs 1 and verse 20, wisdom is shouting in the street. I'm on page 641 if you'd like to follow. Proverbs 1 and verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out, At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel, and did not want my reproof. And now here comes the end of God's striving, my friends, in verse 26. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me. And I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned 
all my reproof. Those are powerful words, my dear friends. And I pray that God would pound them home in the heart of those who need to hear that this morning. That there comes a time when God stops striving and then there's no possible, there's no possibility of salvation for such a person anymore. Well, I move then to my third point. Who? Who? I'm sorry, I, I mixed up on the application, my third and fourth points. Application four should be number three. So let me turn to application four first. That should be application three. I want to bring out the point of election here, my friends. Because here we see that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here we see, actually not for the first time, but we see in a, in a powerful way the principle of God's sovereign election. Now it began already in Genesis 3, right, where God chose the seed of the woman and rejected the seed of the serpent. But now we see it in a different way, in another way, because we see that God chooses Noah. Now we read in the next chapter, in chapter 7 and verse 1, where God tells Noah to enter into the ark, and God says, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Noah was righteous, and God, and because of that, he found favor in God's eyes. But why was Noah righteous, my friends? And this is that principle of election that's given us so clearly. I read to you Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Where we read, Just as he chose us, that is God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so my friends, when we see Noah that Noah is a different child. Noah is a different person. He comes from the line of Seth, but he is not looking at the women of the daughters of Cain. He is staying faithful in his generation. Why? Why did God make that difference between Noah and the rest of the line of Seth? Well, my friends, the difference is solely because God fixed his love on Noah and chose him in Christ before the creation of the world. In order that Noah might be, not because Noah was righteous. God did not choose Noah because he was righteous. God chose Noah in order that he would be righteous and faithful in his generation. And when God saw Noah standing faithful, standing true in his generation, God favored him. And Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That, my friends, is the doctrine of election given to us already in these early pages of Scripture. God chose him to be faithful. But now we have a very important point, my friends, to make here. Because notice that the line of election, as it were, does not just conf uh, confine itself to the seed of the woman. Now the seed of the serpent, Cain, the line of Cain, is rejected. We can understand that. <clears throat> but my friends, do you see that the line of election runs through the children of Seth? Not all the children of Seth are elect. And this teaches us, my friends, that God elects individuals to salvation. That it's not enough to be a child of Eve to be elect. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 9 and verse 6? Remember, Paul said, this is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9. 
he's saying that it's not just enough to be Israel. Not just to be a biological descendant of Abraham and then to consider yourself elect. Remember what Paul said. Not all Israel who are descended from Israel, they are not all spiritual Israel or the elect seed who are the biological seed of Israel. The line of election ran through the nation of Israel too. Not every Israelite was elect. Not every child of Eve is elect. And God is making that point now that in the line of Seth, who are, you might say, the seed of the woman, there is an elect remnant, as it were. And Noah was that individual. My friends, to bring that into our own time, that we could say that all are not elect who are members of the congregation of Covenant United Reformed Church. Now, of course, we would wish that everyone was elect. But that is the, the, the distinguishing, searching truth that comes to us today. That election also runs in a line through the church itself. That there is a church visible. Do you remember these terms? I think you do. The church visible, right, that you can see. But there's also the church invisible. The church invisible is the elect who are in the church. And that's something what we read already in, in, verse, in verse 8. But Noah found favor. In other words, in the line of Seth, God had his elect remnant, his elect people. That brings me then to my last point, dear friends, is are we elect? Now I trust, my friends, that this is a question that you would desire to know the answer to. I don't know that there's a more important question in all the world. Is your name written in God's book of life? Is my name written there? Does my being a pastor somehow entitle me to an easy place in God's book of life? Or if you're an elder or a deacon? Or if you're a member of a Reformed church and even a conservative Reformed church like ours? You see how we can even begin to have some degree of pride because of our membership and of our loyalty and of our strictness and all these things? And yet the scripture says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The rest of the Sethites were out looking at the Canaanite women and desiring them. Oh, my friends, this is, uh, this is the all-important question. And I trust you know that we don't answer this question by trying to read God's book of life. God does not give us a list of his elect people. You cannot read God's book of life. Now, our Canons of Dort helps us to answer this and gives us the... Uh, the answer to this question. And I would like it if you would turn with me to that. I'm going to turn to the Canons of Dort in the back of the blue hymnal. And in closing this sermon, I'd like to read this together with you. And I'm looking at head one. I'm on page 93 in the back of the put it right in the notes here. It, it's on the notes. So head, head one and article 12. Let's read this together. Head one and article 12. The assurance of election. So our fathers teach us, assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time. 
though by various stages and in differing measure. And this is our question, isn't it? How can I know if I am elect? Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves, or noticing within ourselves, with spiritual joy and holy delight, the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and so on. This is how we answer that question, my friends. How can I know if I am elect? And again, I trust that is a question that burns in the hearts of every one of us. And the canons of Dort and the scripture turns us to look within ourselves. Notice, my friends, we're not looking within ourselves to find salvation. Now, that's a very key point. To find salvation, you have to look out of yourself. But now we're asking a different question, aren't we? How can I know if I am saved, if I am an elect child of God? And now we look within ourselves. And what do we see? In the first place, a true faith in Christ, most important. A true faith in Christ. Are you believing and trusting in Jesus? A childlike fear of God. A godly sorrow for sin. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Well, my friends, I ask you to lay this before the Lord. And to be honest with yourselves. And to know whether you are an elect child of God. And where you see those fruits of God's working in your life. That you give him the praise and the glory for it. That he has counted you worthy to be faithful like Noah in your generation. And pray that God would continue to keep you faithful. And to keep all of us faithful. So that we could all know that we are elect. And that we could all have the assurance that we will gather one day on the shores of eternity. And give God the praise for what he has done in our life. Dear friends, may God find us faithful then. And to be as Noah. Faithful in his generation. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon. So dark, O Lord, and the depravity of man so deep. And yet your grace, O Lord, so powerful and so bright, shining like a light into a dark place and teaching us that we also can find grace in your eyes, looking not to ourselves, but by faith in Jesus Christ, by hating our sins, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us then to, be, to, to look this question full in the face and not to dismiss it or to bypass it or just to assume it. But Lord, help us to look within ourselves and to see whether there are in our hearts also the fruits of your working there so that we also might assure ourselves that we are your children, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you in love. Lord, please bless each one, from the youngest to the oldest. Grant that we might make our calling and election sure, and that we might walk with you day by day in a life of faith and holiness, to the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.